and welcome back to the CMEC podcast. I'm Charlotte Leslie, Director of CMEC. In this podcast, we're going to be looking at the Middle East from a slightly different angle. For more than 40 years, CMEC has worked to educate and inform parliamentarians, peers and policymakers about the Middle East. We usually do this through a direct discussion with policymakers discussing international geopolitics. But as MPs who have gone on delegations to the region with CMEC know, for really understanding the Middle East, nothing replaces being in the place, absorbing the culture, speaking with the people. Without that cultural understanding, any political understanding is incomplete and can even be inaccurate. We cannot travel at the moment, but instead we are talking to someone who is working to provide a unique cultural insight into the Arab world today and its history and stories. So, very fittingly, as we celebrate International Women's Day this week, I'm delighted to be speaking to the brilliant Dr. Reem Al-Mutwali. Dr. Reem is the creative force, and it is some force, behind the ZEI initiative, an organisation that advances the preservation of Arab cultural heritage through the collection preservation and digital archiving of Arab historical dress, and crucially, the stories it tells of countries across the Middle East and North Africa. This growing collection started with UAE traditional dress and is ever expanding to include dress from all over the Arab world. So from Palestine, Syria and Lebanon, to Yemen, Bahrain, Qatar, Oman, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait and Iraq, to Tunisia, Morocco, Egypt, Libya and Sudan. It includes examples acquired from the simplest rural families to the ruling families of the region. Dr. Reem, thank you so much for being with us today. Now, I'm delighted to declare an interest, uh, in more ways than one, as an honorary patron of the ZEI Initiative. So I very much look forward to discussing the mission of the ZEI Initiative and talking about the importance of its work in forging global cross-cultural dialogue to both inspire and promote greater understanding. Dr. Reem, thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak today and for affording the platform to reach your audience. I'm very delighted to be here and I hope I will be able to engage your audience as well as inform them. Thank you. I'm, I have no doubt that this is going to be a very informative and enlightening session. If I might just start out by asking, what led you to lead this initiative and start the ZEI initiative? What's the story behind it from your personal perspective? Let me begin first by simply stating that the ZEI initiative is an ode to the past and a nod to the future. It is a collection, as you said, of Arab dress and adornment that celebrate human narratives. Simply put, we at the ZEI Initiative are trying to collect the tangible to narrate the intangible. We collect artifacts to help record the stories of those who used or wore them. Our name originates from the Arabic term ZEI, which means the costume and general attire of a certain country or era. And if you might ask why Arabic, as you said, because the ZEI initiative is concerned with the legacy of the Arab world. And what do we mean by the Arab world? The Arab world is a cultural trait rather than a racial one. Not all Arabs are Muslims, nor all Muslims are Arabs. 
The Arab world is full of rich, diverse communities, ethnicities, religions, groups, and cultures, including Muslims, Christians, Jews, Yazidis, and other minorities. The differences exist not only among countries, but within countries as well. There are 200 million Arabs worldwide. Generally, everyone who adopts the Arabic language is typically called an Arab. So the Zay Initiative aims to promote an understanding of the evolution of regional culture, building up public awareness and appreciation of this unique heritage and reaching out to like-minded individuals and institutions nationally, regionally, and globally. In addition to seasonal or touring exhibitions and museum loans, some of the collection is accessed through our online platform and we call it the collection. If I might just pick up on one or two things that you've just said that I think our listeners might be interested in. It, it seems that what you're saying is that the clothing and the dress fills the gaps that might be left by an absence of written, written record about these stories. Because I'm guessing that not everyone was writing these things down at the time, because I know you go back through history, and that the dress is replacing the written word in a lot of ways. Is that fair to say? I would say the dress and adornments are the vessels from which the narrative is surmised. So we look at them in two different ways. We look at the history of that article and what it could tell us about the culture of that nation and of that society or ethnicity or region. And at the same time, we look at the wearer of that article or the user or maker of that article. And we try when possible to have the information that is related to that person and to put across their names and their stories. So not only do you have a cultural story, you also have the story of the individuals behind the making of the work. And I will explain that in a minute as we go on. There's a lot to discuss. The other thing I'd just like to, to pick out, I guess, from your introduction is that by the sounds of it, the Arab world and, and the Middle East is a lot more diverse than many people might initially think when they think of the Arab world as a whole. Definitely. I think many people tend to surmise that the Arab world is all the same, but it's, it's composed of more than 22 countries and it had been across or experienced historic monumental changes throughout history and time and experiences as well as influences from within as well as abroad. After all, you need to always remember that the Silk Road, the, the historic Silk Road passed through the Arab world and connected the East to the West. So really the region is a, is a melting pot in a sense for all sorts of different cultures and heritages and, and faiths and identities. So true, so true. And what led you personally to start this initiative? What's, what's your story? What's your involvement in wanting to do something like this? Well, I think I represent many Arabs nowadays. I was born in Iraq, but never lived there. I grew up in the United Arab Emirates during the reign of its founding father, the late Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan Al Nahyan. And it was a golden age for this particular region of the Arab world. I went to boarding school in England I studied university in Midwest America, Kansas of all places. I came back to SOAS for my higher education. And, and as, as an adult, I lived in Canada and became a naturalized Canadian. 
Today, I reside between London, Montreal, Boston, Dubai. So I find myself through my upbringing and through my life, I am always spending my time explaining one culture to the other. So therefore, on a personal level, I am passionate about preserving our cultural heritage. And what can be more wonderful than doing so through the medium of dress? As you know, we all get up every morning and consciously or unconsciously decide on what we want to tell the world about us, about ourselves. What we wear visually speaks volumes about who we are. It communicates cultural, economic, artistic notions, as well as individual tastes. It is this desire to tell untold stories and most importantly, to educate others that sparked the Zay Initiative. So explaining one culture to another, I love that. Would you say that the Zay Initiative's work is curated then more towards a Western or a Middle Eastern audience or both? Shortly put, it is a bit of both. Personally, I see us appealing to any balanced, ethical, modern, socially and economically independent global citizen. Someone who is living a cosmopolitan life, comfortable in their own skin, seeking to develop their senses and exercise their physical, creative and mental talents. Humble yet unafraid to push boundaries, sharing achievements with others and leading by example. So anyone who is actively championing global collectives, passionate about the environment and grounded in their heritage, anyone who cherishes the past to illuminate the future, but most of all, someone who is fun-loving, positive force of wellness and happiness is our audience. So in effect, we aim to aspire to a global audience. So the, the intellectually and culturally curious and open from across the world. Hopefully, not only that, it is also those who are seeking knowledge. We are very much focused on presenting the information to the younger generation, those who are seeking to understand where they came from, where they are going, those who are seeking to study how to work for a better, more collective future. And do you think that the insight that we get through fashion and your work adds something different to the narratives that we get through more traditional history and policy analysis in, you know, in academic institutions and think tanks? Do you think it adds a different, an extra layer? And do you think that layer is important for people like policymakers in understanding the region and the people? Definitely. It brings all these essential topics down to earth in a way, because the idea of talking about dress is very approachable. It's very sort of non-evasive, I would say. It's, it's something that anyone would like to speak to and give an opinion, while maybe many people would shy about talking about politics or think they don't know much about economics or something of that sort. But when you start engaging people through the medium of art and dress and textiles and history and storytelling and, and heritage, I think you create a very... Um, pleasurable bond that sort of glues people together and it introduces them to possibilities that show our shared humanity. Yeah, absolutely. And 
Is there a generational difference in the work you do? I mean, one of the issues very much of a globalized world, and as you illustrated, that identities are very, very much mixed up. Now we move an awful lot more than we did, you know, say two to 300 years ago as a, as a species. Our identities are more complex, more layered and richer, but it can also be more difficult for people to locate or understand their own identity. Do you think yeah. your work helps that? And have you found it a grounding and an interesting experience to look at your own cultural heritage and background through dress? Yes, definitely. I, I totally agree. I think maybe this might help illustrate what you just said, and that is through our webinars and the collection and exhibitions, we can tell these stories. Every item in the collection has a story behind it, and every speaker we collaborate with has a story to tell primarily spreading the world on fashion, culture, and heritage to help highlight the exchange of these historical influences along the Silk Road that I was explaining just a few minutes ago, as well as the present-day human global dispersal. Amat al-Zahawi is an excellent example to illustrate the point that I'm trying to say, this continuous movement of people and cultures that you just touched upon. Dr. al-Zahawi was born in 1920. She was one of a handful of Iraqi women, the first class of women doctors to graduate from the Royal College of Medicine in Baghdad. That was in 1943. After her training, she came to California in 1950 and passed the California State Board test, making her the first Iraqi woman to obtain a license to practice medicine in that state. She specialized in pediatric allergy and practiced at her clinic in Orange, California until she passed away. In the 1950s, Dr. Zahawi requested a Hashmi from her family in Iraq who bought it from Basra, which was the center of such production and sent it to her to America. And in 1960, a New York-based artist, John Koch, created an oil painting recording this esteemed doctor wearing this traditional Iraqi dress called a Hashmi. Both the image and article of clothing were donated to the Zay Initiative by her family and are featured on our digital archive, where one can find many other such captivating examples and narratives. So you see, by tracing one person's life, you can speak volumes about women empowerment, about histories, about genealogies, about cultures, about education, about development. You can encompass it in beautiful visual images of that article and the story that lies behind it. And it touches so many different lives. And by the way, Dr. Zahawi is related to a Zahawi that you have in the UK as well. So, you know, they are all dispersed uh, all over the world. That's our minister, Nadim Zahawi. Correct. <laughs> so, so do you see how we are so closely connected, all of us, and how an article of clothing as simple as that can bring in and tie up and connect all these stories together? That's fascinating. At the same time, it dispels the idea of, of the West towards the East or the Arab world. It shows you a woman in the 1950s becoming a doctor in Iraq. And look at Iraq's situation today. Some people listening might say, you know, we're celebrating International Women's Day. And yet here's CMEC doing an interview with a woman about fashion. 
They might say, couldn't you have interviewed so, you know, a woman doing something else in business or because fashion is just a women's thing? What would you say to someone like that? Why is it that fashion is so often seen just as a women's thing and often seen as quite unimportant? What would your response to that listener who may be listening out there now be? You know, you touched upon something that's very important because I get this question a lot, especially when I'm asking for funding and inviting people to support us and to help us with our plight, where they say there are so many other important issues that we need to deal with. Why are you focusing on clothing or adornment? And is it so superficial that we are women always only talk about fashion and about adornment at a time when we should be focusing on many other aspects of our lives. But I believe that these articles that come from our heritage, they are an amazing tool for us to use in order to open discussions about these more important and life needed aspects that we need to talk about. So I use it as a way or as a tool to open up windows into this culture, to allow dialogue, to facilitate interchange of ideas and thoughts and to bring people together. Talking about economics or talking about drier subjects, I think does not engage the audience as much as when you are talking about a beautiful piece of artwork or a beautiful article of craft and culture. I'll give you another example from Iraq. These crafts are dying to the point that study shows This generation is going to be accredited as the generation where most of the Iraqi traditional crafts have been obliterated. So that is a very hard thing to look at and to and to be part of. It's important that we counteract this and make sure that these traditions continue and are sustained for future generations. That's fascinating. So we're seeing a, a precipice of which ancient historic trades and crafts and traditions are falling because of our modern way of life. Yes, very true. And because we are not stopping and smelling the roses, as you say, we are too preoccupied with what's going to come in the future. And we don't stop and look at the past in order to learn from it. I mean, if anything, COVID had taught us, I think, is the fact that we have a shared humanity. We need to look at our heritage. We need to look at where we come from. We need to look at the elements that bind us together, that bring us together in order for us to face a larger challenge, which is going to be applicable to all of us, no matter where we come from. It's very interesting. During my time as an MP, I suppose one of the biggest lessons I took away is that politics is only ever all about the people. And people are very much about identity, their own identities, how they see their identities and how they see the identities of others. What do you think it would or will do to societies if we lose touch with those cultural skills and traditions that forged our identities, each of us in our societies? Where do you think that will take us? I don't believe in time standing still. I think we are constantly evolving. What is important is that we identify these elements or particles of our identities and what makes us different from one another. We respect them, we understand them, and we build upon them. It is not important for us to keep holding to them in a rigid, obstructive way, but more likely is to learn from the experience, to respect the, what came uh, before us, 
and try and develop something that is works for the future, for all our futures. And this is where I think that also the Zay Initiative plays an important part when it comes to trade and commerce and the young generation, because many designers, many educators who want to develop and many inventors, many creative people want to be grounded in something real, in historic facts, in historic information, so that they can grasp from it the inspiration that they need in order to get to help create something new that evolved from that, I presume. So this is where we fit. We are sort of like a connecting link between past and present and future. That's where you're, you're not, you're owed to the past and not to the future. Really yes. is your, your identity and your purpose. Yes. We're seeing a, an era, particularly in the Gulf, of huge change, very fast change in women's activities, women's rights, and, and that's hugely welcome. How does that articulate through fashion? And there must be an awful lot of dialogue and change going on in the expectations of women's dress, women's fashion. I think particularly, you know, in, in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, for example, where women are now driving. I've got a friend who's a woman who's setting up a boxing club in, in Saudi Arabia and helping Saudi women do boxing. There's a lot of change going on. How does that express itself through fashion? Very, very, very good question and very much pertinent to the time. Arab and Muslim women have come a long, long way. And Arab women today, as you just mentioned, are a generation that has grown among globalization. And thanks to technology that we have, they have been exposed to the world around them. Many have grown up educated, exposed to consumer culture and expect to express every aspect of themselves through participation and contribution. They have a larger amount of disposable income, thanks to their new position in the workplace rather than at home. And according to the State of the Global Islamic Economy Report 2018-19, Muslims have spent $270 billion in 2017 and are forecast to spend more than 361 billion by 2023. So these women are looking for clothes that are stylish, fashionable, but also in line with their religious and cultural beliefs. They are women looking to assert themselves in line with their religious and cultural background. And thus they are a real force to be reckoned with. I mean, I've been very lucky to travel around the region and we can't talk about this without talking about a lot of women who don't have those advantages and there's still a very, very long way to go. But I have seen that myself. I guess this opens up a challenge. So the voice of those with money, those who are able to travel, those who are able to travel abroad to be educated are always going to be the voices that we hear globally the loudest. What is the Zay Initiative able to do and how much work do you do to ensure that those women who are not able to travel, who come from very lowly economic backgrounds, who perhaps come from families that are more conservative and more political sense, not party political sense, about what women's role is and women's empowerment. How is the Zay Initiative able to tell those women's stories as well as the, the doctors who are able to travel and the pioneers of women's rights? This is a very, very critical aspect that we aspire to become involved in as we go along. The Zay Initiative is just two years old. And in these two years, we have been focused on developing the initiative itself and putting the grassroots in. 
I believe a small part of this aspect has been covered through the idea of collecting the articles of clothing and documenting the stories and the narratives of these women, giving them a voice. Many of the articles we have are not necessarily those that belong to an affluent person or to somebody who has traveled the way Dr. Zahawi, for example, have traveled. Some of them have lived most of their life in a very remote area of the Arab world, and not many people have heard or known about them. And what happens, and thanks to the social media advantage, People are recognizing the work that we are doing, so they are reaching out to us, and many of these people are sending us articles of adornment of clothing that belongs to their loved ones, women who we've never heard of before, some of them even haven't been to school either. They are from remote villages, isolated areas, but their daughters or their granddaughters or grandsons want to celebrate them, want to keep their memory alive, and to make sure that they are written about and understood, so that they do this activity on their behalf. They send us, and I mean, I, mean, I get one pair of an earring of a grandmother. We have a, a small vial that has the scent of another grandmother, and the story of that lady, and what she produced, and what she did in her society, in her tribe, in her surroundings. And sometimes it is the abaya of one of the males, or the uh, head cover, the agal of a grand uncle or a grandfather. And with that comes their story. So we are becoming a bank of collective stories through these articles that are being sent to us and collected by us and written about it. And then what we do is we, we hope that as we started researching and working and developing the work that we're doing, we, we have realized that we need to keep continue to add researchers and writers and editors and so on and so forth who the majority come to us on a volunteer basis and some of them come to us with you know part-time work but we've initiated a sort of a scholarship program where we can provide this especially during now the COVID times when people are between jobs or people are graduating and they still don't have jobs for example we're trying to offer them small scholarships where they could come in and work with us to help develop this, learn about the mechanism of archiving, writing, and collecting, and help us with the work that we are doing. So it's a symbiotic relationship whereby these individuals can come and work with us. We are also being approached by universities, academic institutions, museums, to loan the objects to them, to present workshops through them, to speak. Now with webinars, we are reaching out to so many different global outreaches that I wouldn't have dreamt of reaching within the two years period that we've been functioning in. So we launched the dialogues on the art of Arab fashion in July 2020. And we are now, I thought we will do one session of that. And we are now in series five of our talks. We have created a fantastic community who regularly tune into our webinars every other Tuesday to listen to one of our dialogues with speakers from all around the world. These discussions with field experts on the art of Arab dress we hope will help educate and dispel misconceptions as we entertain and open a window to the Arab culture. 
For example, I have, uh, we have next week, Alia Younes, who is going to speak on Tailored for Identity, where she will highlight the stories of five unknown Arab women in diaspora, from Singapore to Yemen, to Zinzibar, to Norway and Kuwait. How they gathered their belongings and what did they carry with them as they were dispersed from their original country, another Arab country, and went to these countries and how they are coping. So we do highlight a lot of these quote-unquote unknown women and men and bring their stories and narratives out through our work. Do you think that you're able to highlight these until now unknown stories because you do it through fashion and not in a very direct political way? Are there conversations and links you're able to forge because you don't say, you know, we're here for women's rights, but you do say, please tell me about your grandmother's story, your story, your children's story? Definitely. I totally agree. And I think you hit uh, the nail, the hammer on the nail. What is the expression you use? Hit the nail on the head. Yes, very much so, because people warm up to you. And especially when you are speaking to those who are not fortunate and have an education, simple folks who think that they don't have much to offer. When you come in and you write about their story and you talk to them and show interest in their life and you are recording what they are saying, you empower them, you give them a sense of meaning and you give their life a meaning. They light up and they start telling you things about their life and their, our, their situation and, and their surroundings that you wouldn't necessarily grasp if you were to talk to them about something that they may think they don't understand. I absolutely agree. I and mean, even in my experience traveling and as an MP, I think the policy world is very liable to look at the world through a very narrow lens of policymaking, academic papers, webinar discussions in Westminster and Whitehall, which only sees a certain, a very small aspect of humanity and also is very exclusive to a huge bunch of people, whether they're my former constituents or people in the region who haven't had the advantage of learning to sort of read, read and write in the way that, that we have. I find it fascinating that as we celebrate International Women's Day, I think nine out of 11 of the UK Foreign Office's most powerful or influential diplomats are actually women. And I, I really strongly believe that by having women involved in diplomacy, we get a much wider, richer view of the world than we would do were it just simply dry, single-focus policy approaches, which is actually really exclusive to a whole lot of people in the world. Um, so that's why I was so keen to have you talking to us today, because I know that what you do opens up the voice of a whole lot of people who wouldn't have a voice otherwise. Back to International Women's Day, what misconceptions do you encounter from a Western audience about Middle Eastern women? There is so much misconception even among Arab women and Arab, other Arab women. Again, we have to remember that it's a huge area of the world and there are all sorts of different backgrounds and ethnicities and experiences going on there. And it's kind of like the way many people look at America and think it's all the same, but it's not really, it's a whole continent. So it's the same thing here. You have so much that is misconstrued. But if I want to pinpoint one thing is, and that is, the idea that many Arab and Muslim women are, is it submissive, the word is? 
Yes. And I think that experience and getting to talk to these women and record their histories and record their stories, as well as looking at what's happening in the Middle East nowadays, a lot of people tend to forget that there are many powerful women, self-assured, creative, that, are, that come from the Arab world. One case in mind, which I think everyone would recognize, is Zaha Hadid. Zaha Hadid is an Arab woman. She's a Muslim woman. She comes from Iraq. And look what she has done to the rest of the world. Can you tell us a bit about her for any listeners who might not know who she is? Uh, Zaha Al-Hadid is British Iraqi architect who is considered the lady of the curve, she's called. She is one of the most influential 20th and 21st century architect in the whole world. And she has created the most beautiful, challenging buildings around the world. She just recently passed away. Zaha was a very good friend and colleague and our families our friends from generation to generation. But she was a person that left her imprint on all humanity, not only the Arab world. And if others would see the Arab women as an example of Zaha, we would be clearing a lot of misconceptions. I have to agree with you. One of the greatest revelations for me when I first started traveling to the Middle East was just how feisty, able, talented and impressive the women in the Middle East are a real force to be reckoned with. Have you got a, a message to, and I hate saying women today because women are all extremely different and whether they're from different parts of the world or not, but have you got a message to women in the region and women today from what you've learned and seen from your collecting and curating of history, stories, culture through fashion? I would say, and especially now that we are in, in celebrating today, our uh, Women's International Day, I think in today's world, we are debating many notions such as social injustice, gender bias, cancel culture, cultural appropriation, many other social and religious misinterpretations, eager to search for a sustainable future. I believe a challenged world is an alert world. And from challenge will come change. Individually, we are all responsible for our own thoughts and actions all day and every day. So I believe we can all choose to change and call out gender bias and inequality. We can all choose to seek out and celebrate women's achievements. And collectively, we can all help create an inclusive world. So I urge you, all of you, to choose to change. And, and finally, if anyone who's listening wants to understand a bit more about the Zay Initiative, but maybe wants to become one of your members, how should they do that? Very easy. You just need to go www.thezay.org. We have a website. It is in both languages, Arabic and English, and you can explore the website, learn more about us. And if you are interested, you can become a friend of the Zay Initiative and help us with our cause. You can listen to our webinars, make use of our weekly blogs, listen to our podcasts and become more engaged with the Arab world. In Arabic, we have a saying, Antum karama wa nahnu nastahil, which means or translates to 
You are generous and we are deserving. Our work deserves encouragement and I encourage you to join and help us sustain the legacy. Dr. Reem, it's been wonderful having you with us this morning. Happy International Women's Day. Look forward to hopefully speaking to you again soon and seeing how the Innate Zay initiative is progressing. From all of us here at CMEC, thank you very much indeed. Charlotte, thank you so much for inviting me to this talk. And thank you more for sympathizing with our cause and accepting to be our patron and supporting what we are doing. I hope that we will become the cultural arm that you can depend on. And I hope that we would engage in many future projects in order to exchange cross-cultural information and help people connect on a social and personal level with the two worlds. Dr. Rimmel, as we know, when women get together to work for change, things happen. So I very much look forward to it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much.